Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. This morning we are diving back into our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be beginning a three-part look at a series of studies that I've titled An Appeal, An Audience, and a Witness. An Appeal, An Audience, and a Witness, which we're going to be covering in Acts chapter 25, verse 12, all the way through the end of Acts chapter 26. And in part one today, we're going to be studying uh, chapter 25, verses 12 through 27, so we're going to be finishing chapter 25 today. But first, let's read the first 11 verses uh, for the context here. So Acts 25, beginning in verse 1, Luke recording this here. He says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay lay in ambush. What's going on with my microphone here? While they lay in ambush uh, along the road to kill him. Verse 4, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death... I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. I want us to understand here that Paul has been being prepared by the Lord for this opportunity that he's about to get to testify about Jesus to King Agrippa and to Bernice, and to Festus, and all these other officials who we're going to see gather together just to see and hear from this prisoner, Paul, who the Jewish leaders wanted dead very badly. They, they weren't content anymore to just go along with some other assassin's plans. They have now become the assassins, or desired to be the assassins. See, after Saul's conversion... We see this preparation of his life. When he was still blind and awaiting further instruction in Damascus, Jesus had showed up to a man named Ananias to commission him to go to Saul so that Saul, who we now know as Paul, would receive his sight. But in that meeting, Jesus told Ananias some specific things about what he was going to do with Saul, and we read this in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, this conversation between Ananias and Jesus. It says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, notice, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Up to this point in the book of Acts, more than 20 years after Jesus spoke those things about Paul to Ananias, we've not seen Paul ever testifying 
before a king. Yes, a governor. Yes, some local city officials and, you know, some, some local rulers, but never a king up to this point until now. Clearly what Jesus had said, he was going to make good on. I don't know about you, but 20 years after Jesus spoke to me about something and I hadn't seen that thing happen yet, I would start to wonder like if it was ever going to happen. What about that king's part? <laughs> you know, Jesus, you've sent me to Gentiles. Jesus, you've sent me to the children of Israel, but 20, year, 20 plus years. And yet what Jesus said he was going to be faithful to do, always. The same is true for you and me. Every time what Jesus has said, he will always be faithful to do. And for me, this whole situation just reinforces that, that Paul was right in the center of God's will here. Had Paul not come to Jerusalem knowing that chains and tribulations awaited him, and had he not gone through all that he had gone through in the two years since he was grabbed and beaten by the mob at the temple, being rejected by the crowd, being rejected by the majority of the religious leaders, the assassination plot, the, the false accusations he's had to endure more than once, being imprisoned unjustly for two years in Caesarea and now having to appeal to Caesar, Paul never would have had this opportunity he's about to get to point so many high-ranking politicians and military officers to Jesus had he not gone through all that he had gone through. You know, if any one of us were in Paul's shoes and went through all that he had gone through in the two years that led up to this point, not to mention all of the other gnarly things that Paul went through in the years before that as he sought to live for Jesus— we might wonder if we were really in God's will or if the Lord was even with us at all because oftentimes our circumstances and our emotions or our feelings and even what other people are doing around us can be the lens that we begin to see our lives and the Lord through. I start to judge the Lord off of people. I start to judge how good the Lord is based off of the chaos of the world. When my lens for seeing everything becomes what I see instead of what I know, instead of the truth of God's word, instead of Jesus himself, his character and his nature and his promises. You know, Paul could have let all that had happened to him the past two years to harden him and make him joyless, could have become bitter towards Roman officials who seemed to be perfectly content to let him stay a prisoner unjustly to where he, you know, got to this point, but just didn't have any love for those who Jesus wanted to use him to reach with his gospel. But thankfully, that did not happen here. Thankfully, that did not happen in Paul's life. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged when I see somebody who's gone through trials and suffering and, and, and bad things have happened to them, people have done messed up things to them, and their hearts are still soft towards the Lord and towards others. That encourages me. That convicts me at times. Because it's a lot easier to just shrivel up in our hearts to have our love begin to grow cold. Our passion towards the Lord and the things of the Lord starts to dwindle because this world is crazy and people are crazy. You and I have our own level of crazy, even as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I have a level of crazy that's being sanctified by the Lord daily, amen? Amen. Praise God that we're not as crazy as we used to be. But we're still crazy. You're crazy. Just if that offends you, like just fess up to it. I got it in my own life. We get it as we 
interact with one another in the body of Christ, it gets weird sometimes. Stuff can be hard because we're all sinners that are being sanctified. I love it that Paul let the Lord in his word, the promises of the Lord, be the lens that he saw everything else through, including his circumstances, including his emotions and his feelings, included the people around him which helped him to not miss the opportunities the Lord gave him when everything was hard. You ever gotten to a point in your life and you're going through something and instead of keeping your eyes on the Lord, your eyes have drifted onto yourself and, and, and maybe you've come through that and what you've, when you look back, you're like, dang, there was some opportunities there, maybe for growth, maybe for the Lord to use me but I missed the opportunities because I was so focused on me or I was so focused on this thing or on what was going on over here or what this other person was doing. And Paul's example here is just, it's an ongoing needed, Paul was not perfect. Paul struggled, he had fears, he had discouragement. I'm sure he wrestled with not growing bitter towards people at times. But what a great challenge for us in the life of the Apostle Paul as he sought to imitate Christ that we could seek to follow Paul's example because Paul was just following Jesus. We look at Paul's life, we don't just get focused on Paul. I just want to be like Paul. I just want to be like Paul. Paul makes me want to be like Jesus because that's all Paul wanted. I just want to be like my Lord. And we don't see Jesus getting all bent out of shape and like bitter towards the religious leaders, we don't see him cursing people from the cross. No, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. You, I mean, if we think about that, just that aspect of Jesus from the cross, I mean, that just, because we know us. If we were being honest with ourselves, if we were there, we had been spit on and scourged and beaten and mocked and all we had done was just love people. We came to save them. We would have a hard time being able to utter those words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We might say, Father, forgive them, but we'd be like, forgive them. But at the same time, Lord, jack them up because they know what they did to me. They knew perfectly well that they're doing to me. But man, what a powerful example of humility and love and grace and forgiveness we see in Jesus. And then trickling down into the life of Paul. The Lord had been preparing Paul for this. This was part of God's will for Paul's life. And Paul was going to embrace this opportunity with joy, actually, as we'll see him respond next week to King Agrippa. But with all that in mind, look at verses 12 and 13. It says in verse 12, then, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. As a reminder, you know, Paul utilized his rights as a Roman citizen, not just to avoid potential harm, but in order to further the gospel by appealing to be judged by Caesar. And Festus could not deny him. He had to grant Paul's request. I can't even say the word request. There we go. And now Paul's appeal to Caesar is going to solidify him going to Rome. It's going to provide the context for what's going to follow throughout the remainder of the book of Acts where Luke is now going to primarily record for us how Paul gets to Rome. That's really the whole rest of the book of Acts. But after Festus granted Paul's appeal to Caesar in verse 12, we're introduced to some other people in verse 13, if you remember from our study at the end of Acts chapter 24, and don't feel bad if you don't remember, when looking at the Roman governor Felix and his wife Drusilla, it was funny because someone on Facebook later on had said, you know, after learning about Drusilla was like, and this is why we don't name our daughters Drusilla. 
It's like, um, uh, what's her, uh, you know, uh, Solomon's, or not Solomon, um, Delilah. Yeah, it's like there's certain names that were like, we don't have a great connection there for. Delilah is one of those for sure. Maybe Drusilla. And, uh, but, you know, we're, we roll with it. So, uh, but we did find out at the end of that study that Drusilla was the sister of King Agrippa II and Bernice, who we're now being introduced to. So the three of them were siblings. Uh, Drusilla, King Agrippa II, and Bernice were the children, just a little recap here, they were the children of King Herod Agrippa I. Makes sense. This is King Herod Agrippa II. His dad was King Herod Agrippa the first, who was responsible for having the Apostle James, James and John, the brothers, had the Apostle James killed with the sword and had Peter put in prison back in Acts chapter 12. Their great uncle was Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, who had had John the Baptist beheaded and who mocked Jesus before sending him back to Pilate before Jesus was crucified. Their father was actually killed by their great, I'm sorry, their, their grandfather was killed by their great-grandfather because he was paranoid. And not only did he kill two of his sons, but he killed his wife as well. Their great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who in Matthew chapter 2 had all the infants two years old and younger in Bethlehem murdered after wise men from the east who came to worship the king of the Jews who had been born didn't return to Herod to tell him where Jesus was at. So that the Herodian dynasty was full of some really evil people. And, and this is the family lineage of these two individuals here. No, what's going on with my mic? But anyways, that just provides some of the family history. But Although King Agrippa II and Bernice were brother and sister, there was actually speculation or rumors at that time because of the closeness of the two of them and how they lived together. Uh, And so Bernice had actually been married before this point in time. She was married to her uncle, and her uncle had died. And when her uncle died, she went and lived with her brother Agrippa, and there was speculation that the two of them were actually in an incestuous relationship, which isn't too far-fetched when you know that she was formerly married to her uncle. A lot of weird stuff in the Roman Empire in that day, and incest was definitely one of those things. King Agrippa II here actually grew up with the Roman Emperor Claudius. He ruled the Jewish people under the Roman Empire from about A.D. 53 to A.D. 100, so 47 years. He was extremely loyal to Rome, and over time, as other uh, successive emperors took the throne, he was actually granted more and more territory to rule over and had a big part to play in the Jewish-Roman war there in like eighty sixty six to eighty seventy ish, but that's just to provide some background here into who we're reading about. And as we're going to see, Paul's appeal is going to lead to Paul having an audience, which is going to lead to an open door for Paul to be able to witness to testify about Jesus. And so let's continue on and read verses fourteen through 21. It says, oh my gosh, hold on a second. Sorry, guys. See if that works. Verse 14. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. 
Therefore, verse 17, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. And just to be clear at this time, the Caesar who was ruling was Nero. That term Augustus was not a person's name. Augustus actually is a title. It's an imperial title that means revered, worthy of reverence. We got to remember in that day in the Roman Empire that imperial worship was actually a big part of what happened uh, in Rome. And so, you know, Festus in these verses is really just explaining to King Agrippa what led up to this point. He starts with Paul being left a prisoner by the former governor, Felix. He ends with his desire to have King Agrippa help him to know what kind of charges to write against Paul in the letter that he needed to send to Rome for Caesar. Can you imagine the embarrassment that Festus would have sending this prisoner? He's appealed to Caesar, but he doesn't know what to write. He's just going to send him and be like, here you go. Here's Paul. Like, he's like, I need something. I need to be able to tell why I'm sending this dude to the emperor himself to be judged by the emperor. I have to be able to say something or I'm going to look really terrible. And so in, in these verses, while most of what Festus shared was true, we also see that some was a lie in order to put himself in a better light in the eyes of King Agrippa. See, in verses 20 and 21, we find Festus stating, anybody when you read Festus think of Uncle Fester? Now that I've said it, you're going to think about it, right? It's like the Felix the cat thing before. Festus, not Fester. We know that already, but I just wanted to cue you into where my mind goes just for fun. Anyways, we find Festus in verses 20 and 21 stating he was uncertain, not completely sure, regarding the issues the religious leaders brought up against Paul, revolving around their religion, so customs and law, and and uncertain about whether Jesus was dead or alive, and, and that his uncertainties, he says, about those things was why he asked Paul to go to Jerusalem to be judged, but that was actually not true. As we read in the first verses of the chapter, Festus asked Paul if he would go to Jerusalem to be tried there, not because he was as uncertain, it was because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to be seen in a favorable light by the religious leaders he was now governing. And now as he explains the whole situation to, a king, to King Agrippa, he's trying to be seen in a favorable light before him as well, kind of twisting the facts a little bit and very politician-y. I mean, nothing's changed over the millennia. Like, it's just there. It's there and it is what it is, Right? But I want us to notice something we didn't already learn from verses 1 through 12 when we study those verses. And that's what Festus says in verse 19. That the religious leaders didn't accuse Paul of things Festus thought that they might. But instead their accusations revolved again around issues with him about their own religion, their customs and their laws. But specifically I want us to see that he says that he was uncertain about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. We didn't learn that in those earlier verses when it happened. We don't see any of that insight given to us 
when the account actually played it out. You know, we don't know what Festus knew about Jesus before all of this. But he knew the religious leaders said that this certain Jesus was dead. And he knew that Paul claimed that this certain Jesus was alive. See, Paul, who was once a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees named Saul of Tarsus, who was against Jesus and his disciples, persecuting them even to the death, was now this man standing before him affirming that Jesus was alive. Why? Because Paul had seen and experienced the risen, living Jesus personally. He had seen him. Not just on the road to Damascus. We just saw not long ago that Jesus stood by Paul when Paul was imprisoned and dealing with fear and discouragement that Jesus showed up where Paul was and he said, be of good courage, Paul. As you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you will testify of me in Rome. Paul had seen Jesus and his life it was never the same. You know, I believe a big part of how Paul didn't lose his passion for reaching others with the gospel of Jesus and in spite of all the bad things and injustices and that, that happened to him by people, and a big part of why Paul didn't become hardened and joyless and bitter or apathetic towards those who Jesus wanted to use him to reach with his gospel was because Paul's focus was not on himself or on his circumstances or on those around him, but was fully on the risen and living Jesus who he had seen and encountered and been saved and transformed by. The reality of Jesus' resurrection that, that yes, he was crucified and buried, which must be preached, but that he didn't stay dead, that he was alive, that he is alive was a major emphasis of what Paul preached, and it was a major emphasis of all the apostles and all the New Testament writers throughout the rest of the New Testament. Why? There's not a lot of hope in a dead Savior. A dead Savior is like every other dead figure who did great things or who said some really significant things, but they're just dead. They're dead like all the other people who came on the scene, who maybe promised some big things, but then they just died. Jesus is different. He's unique in that he made significant claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed that he and the Father are one. He claimed that he was going to go to the Father and that he would come again and take us to be with himself. He promised us eternal life. He promised us salvation. He promised us forgiveness. He embodied grace and truth because that's who he was. And then when he died, he didn't stay dead. He rose. So if he stayed dead, all the claims mean nothing. We'd be like every other person in this world who's put their hopes in some dead figure who said some really great things. But what did it all really mean in the end? Jesus' resurrection is the seal of authenticity. It's what makes good everything that he said. The fact that we have a risen and living Savior means that we can have a real and living relationship with a real and living God. That's what you and I have been invited into. That's what God has provided through His Son, Jesus. Listen, if Jesus didn't raise, He never would have ascended. 
And if he never ascended, he never would have sent his spirit. And if he never sent his spirit, you and I would be living a life that is lacking in all of the power that comes in having the spirit, the presence, the power of Christ in us. Can you imagine what would our lives be like? I mean, we know what we do. We know us on a day-to-day basis. How about us with no spirit of God in us? How about us with no Holy Spirit sanctifying us and working on us and convicting us and encouraging us daily? Man, we would just be, we'd be hopeless. We'd be like everybody else in this world. But we're not. We're not because our Savior's not like anybody else. He's not like any other Savior, quote-unquote, that's come on the scene. He's alive. I was reading a blog article just recently by, by Tas- Pastor Tim Brown from Calvary Fremont. He wrote about the resurrection and talking about how, you know, science science is not how we prove the resurrection. It's history that proves the resurrection. It's not, uh, the resurrection is not a scientific fact. It's a, it's a historical fact that's verified by eyewitnesses, that's carried on through the power of the living Jesus who's still working in the lives of individuals today. That's you and me. I want to ask us this morning, have the circumstances of our lives or maybe even just the circumstances of the past two and a half years or the chaos in our world or the difficult people we've had to deal with, has it hardened us? Has it made us a little joyless? Has it made us a little bitter? Has it caused us to lack in the love of Christ for those who Jesus wants to use us to reach with his gospel? If we've encountered and been saved and transformed by the risen, living Jesus, that reality that Jesus is alive should impact how we live and what we do with our lives and how we spend our time and how we interact with others and what we prioritize. And it should motivate us to be Jesus-centered, kingdom-centered, gospel-centered, others-centered people. And if that's not us today, know that God wants to graciously but radically do a work in us, a work of revival, a work of renewal, a work of refining, a work of refreshing, a work of sanctifying us that would soften and and realign our hearts, our minds, so that we truly are those Jesus, kingdom, gospel, other-centered disciples that Jesus wants us to be. You know, Festus didn't know exactly what to think about what the religious leaders accused Paul of. They say he's dead. Paul's affirming he's alive. But at the very least, Festus had heard from Paul that Jesus was Alive, which would imply that Paul also would have spoken about how Jesus first died before he rose, which for me shows that Paul shared the gospel with Festus at some point before this. And if anyone has joined us that don't, doesn't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray today will be the day of salvation for you. But let's finish our account and read verses 22 through 27. Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, And all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, 
both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he, he himself had appealed to Augustus, I descent, decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. I love it that after, you know, Festus finishes explaining all the things revolving around Paul, that Agrippa just responds in verse 22, I, I also would like to hear the man myself. This is very simple. You know, Festus gives this whole long thing. I want to hear him for myself. Like, yeah, you've told me something. I, I want to hear him. And so Festus arranged for that to happen the next day in the auditorium, which if you've seen the area of Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea on the sea, where the palace was, or maybe you've been to Israel and you've been to Caesarea Maritime, uh, there is a auditorium outdoors that's actually on the beach, right overlooking the Mediterranean Sea that they've excavated and it's very possible that that auditorium, that outdoor auditorium, is where this would have taken place. Very visible place. And we see in verse 23 that Agrippa and Bernice, they show up in the auditorium the next day. And it says that they came with great pomp. That word pomp there is, speaks of pageantry, of ceremonial elegance and splendor. And that with them, in their pomp, were the commanders and the prominent men of the city. But this scene just makes me picture the scene from the movie Aladdin, where the genie made Aladdin the prince and the whole Prince Ali song. Prince Ali, marvelous sea, Ali. Right? And he's coming in like, he's got 75 golden camels, right? Purple peacocks, he's got 53. And they're like throwing gold to the poor people that are like lining the road. You know, that's pomp. Look at how important I am. I mean, I'm somebody you should be, you should want to be around me. You should want to hear me. Just be in my presence. This pomp here was to show their importance. This, that, and there's all this show as they entered the auditorium. But I want us to notice, for what? What was the pomp for? To listen to an imprisoned Jewish man named Paul, who, is, who you know, some historians at the time described as a short, crook-nosed, balding, uh, wet-eyed because of potentially the malaria that he experienced years earlier and still struggled with that messed up his eyesight. Just not much to look at prisoner who had been in prison in Caesarea for two years. This is what their pomp was for. We're here to listen to this guy. We want to, you know, can't look like much. And yet in the eyes of God, the prisoner here was actually the one who was free. And all the so-called important people who thought that they were free were actually the prisoners. They were the ones who were in bondage to Satan. Such an interesting dynamic here. This was the who's who of royalty, politicians, and high-ranking military officers that had assembled and who are a part of this audience who had gathered to hear Paul. But, but as we consider what Festus shared in verses 24 through 27, three things were at the forefront for Festus in all of this. First, that the whole assembly of the Jews wanted Paul dead. So there's something significant about this guy. Like, He's like the most hated people in all of the Jewish nation in Festus's estimation, right? And on top of that, Paul is a Jew himself. So it's kind of a weird dynamic. Why does everybody hate one of their own countrymen? So 
The, the Jews wanted Paul dead. Second, that, that Festus could find nothing incriminating in Paul, that he had done nothing deserving of death, which is what the former governor Felix had said about Paul too. And it's what Agrippa and Bernice are going to say at the end of Acts chapter 26. And then third, Festus had to send Paul to Caesar Nero because Paul had invoked his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to be judged by Caesar. But, but Paul's innocence created this problem for Festus because, again, he didn't know what charges to even write to send with Paul to Caesar. And so he hopes that King Agrippa getting to examine Paul would help, Agri- would help Festus to know what to write to Caesar. And along with all of that, I want us to see that Luke is showing us repeatedly that these Roman officials all believed that Paul was innocent. He's innocent. That's the interesting thing here. Paul's innocent, and yet he's left to rot in prison for two years. Paul's innocent, but Festus comes on the scene, and he's like, I don't know, do you want to go to Jerusalem to be judged? I don't, we don't know if Paul knew that the, the, the religious leaders were going to lay an ambush for, for him, but he knew that Jerusalem was a really dangerous place for him to go. And, and yet, Festus is so, saying, but I know he's, he's innocent. King Agrippa and Bernice are going to say, we, we see that he's innocent. This guy shouldn't even be in chains at all, let alone be killed. Luke is pointing this out to us, but he's also pointing that in, out that in spite of Paul's innocence, God's plan was winning out over the plans of the religious leaders and even the Roman officials because God was going to use Paul's chains. He was going to use Paul's imprisonment throughout the rest of the book of Acts for the furtherance of the gospel. See, you and I would look at that and say, what a waste. Paul could have been doing so much more. I mean, two years in Caesarea, chained to a guard, like, what a waste. What purpose could God have in that? I mean, Paul effectively is, everything is out of his control at this point in his life. He has to go along with whatever Rome is deciding for him. He's going to tell them, hey guys, I, I, I don't think we should do this with this ship. They're not going to listen to him. And a shipwreck's going to happen. His life, everything about his life seemingly was out of control. His imprisonment was seemingly, from an outside perspective, a waste. And yet it wasn't. Because God was doing something deeper. He was doing something greater through Paul's circumstances. Even though they're things that I'm sure Paul never would have necessarily chosen for himself. I mean, even when Paul gets to Rome, he's going to be there in house arrest for two years. But those two years were going to be years where, where God's going to use Paul by the inspiration of the Spirit to write letters that are stored for us in the pages of the New Testament that have furthered the gospel, that have blessed the lives of believers over the course of the last 2,000 years almost. We might look at that and go, what a waste. I mean, what good could come out of that? How could this be the Lord's will? And yet God's doing something bigger through it. What about for you and for me? What might we be going through that we might think the same thing? What a waste. I mean, things seem out of control. What purpose could God have in this? How could this be the Lord's will for my life? Would we be able to take a step back and go, God, but what are you doing? How are you working? Give me, give me a different perspective. Give me an eternal perspective on my present circumstances. Help me to see how even the unpleasant things, even the undesirable things might be things that you're actually using for the furtherance of your gospel. Maybe it's to refine me, Lord. Maybe it's a witness to the people around me. But look, 
no matter the size of the audience, no matter who was in the audience, Paul just wanted to be faithful to share about Jesus, to share about what Jesus had done in his life personally, to share about what Jesus could do in the lives of others as well. And I pray that we have that same heart, that same mindset that Paul had, that we would value other people even as Paul did. I mean, I'm sure Paul probably heard the same rumors about Agrippa and Bernice. He's got this immoral couple before them, their brother and sister, how weird and awkward you could feel. But Paul didn't make it more awkward. He gave them value. He gave them honor as people who Jesus loved and died for. And he spoke to them where they're at that we would be able to do the same thing. He doesn't validate their lifestyle, but he gives them Jesus. And I love that example here in the life of Paul. Look, guys, we live in a world where there are billions of people. Even if the reports that we read online, which I don't think are accurate because there's a lot of people that claim Christianity because they're, they're American, claim Christianity because their grandparent went to church growing up, but actually having a saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you've surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus, and, and by faith through grace, you've been saved by the blood of Jesus. Like I don't think the one-third of the world's population estimation, uh, estimate is accurate, we have 7.7 plus billion people in our world. Even if that estimation is true, two-thirds of this world are on the broad road leading to destruction, heading to hell. And Jesus wants to save every single one of those people. I mean, there are millions, hundreds of millions of people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. They don't even know who Jesus is. And you and I are who God wants to use to reach those people. And you don't have to go to another country even to do that. They're in your backyard. They might even be living in your house. (laughs) Some parents are dealing with their kids and they're trying to deal with all these behavioral things. But you know what the problem might be? They just aren't saved yet. They need the spirit of God living in them. You want to deal with behavioral things, and we do, it's part of like how we deal with our kids, but there's a heart issue there. Our kids need Jesus Christ just like you and I do. Our spouse, our siblings, our neighbor, our coworker, the person at the market, the gas station attendant, like these people just need Jesus. And you and I have Jesus. And we could give him freely at any time. We open our mouths and we talk about him. And I think that in these days, we need to regain a right sort of fervency, a passion to just talk about him. It doesn't have to be this awkward thing like, oh, I'm building up the courage to do it. Just talk about what Jesus has done in you personally. Watch what the Lord does with that. Festus couldn't deny the changed life of the Apostle Paul, and others are not going to be able to deny the changed life that Jesus has worked in you or me either. And over time, as we consistently and faithfully seek to live out our lives for Jesus and love them with the love of Jesus and point them to the person of Jesus, he's going to use it in some way. I want to give us a little recipe here this morning as the worship team comes back up. Look, you know what oftentimes God's wanting to use? First, just our prayers. Sometimes we're just not motivated to share Jesus with others because we're not even praying about it. We're not maybe praying for others. Maybe we're not praying for opportunities to share with others. And I've said this many times before, but the things that we're prayerful about, we are more mindful about. When we're prayerful, we're more mindful. When we're praying for somebody, we 
are more mindful to look for the opportunities and then to take the opportunities when God presents them to us. He wants to use our prayers plus our faith. Prayer is primary. Pray, 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 pray. Pray for yourself. Pray that God would move you and stir you. Pray for others. But then faith, God, help me to walk by faith. Help me to trust you. Prayer plus faith plus obedience. Because it's not just, okay, God, I trust you, but it's like, okay, then God gives you the opportunity and then he's going, here you go. And then we're like, nah, I don't really want to, Lord. I mean, come on, let's just be honest for a moment. Maybe we don't say, I don't want to, Lord. Maybe what we say is, oh, God, I'm really busy. You ever said, God, I'm just really, I've got this thing, I have this appointment, I need to be here. You're saying no. I'm saying no in those moments. We can call it whatever we want. We're telling God no. Lord, I don't want to. I've got places to be and people, you know, places to be, people to see. Obedience. Prayer plus faith plus obedience. And you know what? Oftentimes when those three things are there, God gives opportunities. And because you're prayerful, you're, you're more mindful of the opportunity. You see it more clearly. Because you're walking by faith, you're trusting that the Lord's gonna give you the words. He's gonna give you what you need to share with that person in the moment. And because of the obedience, you actually do the thing. You actually open your mouth. You actually share with somebody about Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, it's gotta be the Lord. You're not saving anybody, neither am I. Just give him Jesus and watch what Jesus does. Listen, what has God been preparing us for? What has he allowed or brought into our lives that has led us to where we are right now? The opportunities and people he's placed around us right now. And where is our focus? Because if we're focused on ourselves, if we're focused on our problems, if we're focused on the chaos of the world, if we're focused on all the injustice, if we're focused on all the evil, if we're focused on people, the difficult people, that just rub us the wrong way, then our eyes are not fully where they need to be, which is on Jesus Christ. So let's look back to Jesus. Maybe there's a realignment of vision this morning. Look back to Jesus and run the race he's given you. I have to run the race that Jesus has given me. We look to Jesus and the wrath thing is that he's going... I see you, I'm with you, I've got you. And this whole witness thing, I'll empower you. I'll give you what you need and I'll give you boldness. I'll give you opportunities. You don't even have to make the opportunities happen. I pray that we would see more and more people in our area here be brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful for God, how you love us. Father, thank you for how you sent your son to die for us. Not just to die, but to rise from the dead in glory. a historical fact. Lord, that Jesus, you ascended to the Father. Jesus, you sent your Spirit. That Jesus, you're still working by your Spirit in our lives. That Jesus, even from heaven, you're interceding for us right now as our great high priest. That Jesus, one day you're going to return in the clouds for your church to call us home. And Jesus, for those of us who have seen you, Lord, we've experienced and encountered you, Lord. Our lives have been saved and transformed by you. God, would that impact everything about us, everything about how we live 
how we see the world around us, how we see people, how we interact with people, how we use our time, how we use our resources, what we prioritize. And Lord Jesus, we would, would your resurrection power be at work in us? Lord, if any are feeling just a lack of passion, a lack of boldness, maybe there's a lack of love for people. Maybe there's some hardness, Lord. Maybe there's some bitterness. Maybe there's just apathy. There's just, we don't, we're not really moved. We can't be moved to compassion the way you were, Jesus, when you saw people because there's just this general apathy at work in our lives. Lord God, would you work radically in us? God, would you work graciously in us, Lord, to refine and to revive and to renew and to refresh? Lord, to soften us. Lord, that we would truly be those Jesus-centered kingdom of God-centered, gospel-centered, other-centered people that you've called us to be as your disciples. God, would you minister to your people where they're at today? Lord, those that are feeling hopeless or discouraged by their circumstances, God, meet them. Lord, uphold them with your righteous right hand. Be their strength, Lord. Be their joy. Be their peace. Be their hope. And Lord, if anyone's joined us that doesn't have a personal saving relationship with you, I pray that even now you would be opening blind eyes and deaf ears. If that's anybody who's joined us this morning, would you just stand if that's you and you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ? You want to know that your sins are forgiven, that your debt has been paid Maybe this morning you would just stand with me to just say, you know what, I just, I, I want Jesus to do a fresh work in me. I, I want that passion for Jesus restored. I want a passion for the gospel restored in my life. Maybe that's you and you would stand with me today because even though I'm already standing, if that call was to me, I would be standing as well. If that's you and you're going, Lord, I want boldness. Lord, I want courage. I, I want your spirit working in me and softening me and that God, you would embolden me in these days. Awesome, Lord, you see every single one. Lord, you see our hearts. God, would you pour out your spirit upon us this morning? Lord, God, revive. God, you're a God who specializes in revival. You're a God who specializes in renewal. Lord, you're the one who refreshes hearts. You're the one who restores souls. God, you're the one who can refine us to make us as pure as gold. God, make us passionate about the things that you're passionate about. Lord, stir us for the things that you're stirred for. God, give us your agape love for one another and for the lost. And God, would you lead us, Lord, would you help us to be prayerful and faith-filled and obedient. And Lord, would you give us those opportunities to love people with the love of Jesus and to share with others the gospel of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We want to sing these songs to you now. Lord, we're just hearts of adoration, God. Lord, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we take the communion elements, Lord, that we would commune with you, Lord, we would be reminded once again of, Jesus, what you've done for us, what you've provided for us through your sacrifice upon the cross. Lord, as we have time to be prayed for in the corner of the room by the prayer counselors, Lord, that we would take advantage of those times and, God, that not one of us would leave this place 
the way that we came in. But Lord, would we, be, would we leave, Lord, as transformed people who have met with and seen and encountered the living, living and risen Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We continue to give you our time now as we sing these songs of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.